Welcome to the Sports Fan Radio podcast. The panel recently spoke with Monash University's senior lecturer, Dr. Eric Windholtz, about transgender and intersex issues in sport. And very special guest today, Dr. Eric Windholtz, senior lecturer at Monash <coughs> University. Now, John, I know that you are all over transgender issues in sport, and uh, you've particularly wanted Eric to come on the program today. Um, I might turn it over to you to uh, kick off the uh, discussion. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, uh, Professor. Uh, great to have two professors on the show today. Uh, nice to see you, Eric, and thanks for coming along. Look, yes, the, it's a topic that we've been discussing, you know, it, it would be years now, uh, about the whole transgender intersex issue, and it really is starting to get to the pointy end. And, and we'll talk about uh, Leah Thomas and other issues shortly, but just as a, as a matter of a bit of a primer, Eric, could you just tell us the uh, the what is intersex, what is transgender, uh, and then we'll get into how they intersect with sport. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much for, for having me on. I appreciate it. I um, appreciate the opportunity to talk about this issue. Um, I don't think there's probably a more complex issue facing sport right now, and there's a lot of complex issues facing sport, so that says something. Um, the issue around transgender intersex, I think you're right. I think it is helpful to just define what we're talking about. When we talk about transgender issues, we're talking about an incongruity or a disconnect between a person's biological sex or gender, you know, their biological sexual characteristics and the gender with which they identify. So a person who was born with male sexual characteristics but identifies as a female or a person who's born with female sexual characteristics, I'm talking about biological characteristics, but then identifies as a male. Intersex is a person who has been born with um, an atypical set of male and female sexual characteristics, such that they aren't clearly male or clearly female. Sometimes that combination can be um, um, anatomical. They, you know, they could have both female and male sexual organs. In other cases, and the one that really comes up in sport most often is a person who was born with female sexual characteristics, anatomical organs, but has um, hormones, particularly testosterone hormone, at a male level. So they've got both female anatomical characteristics, but male hormone levels. Just on that, Mikasa uh, Semenya is a, an athlete that uh, we, we've followed. Um, I'd have to say supported. Um, and uh, where does she fit in within that dichotomy you've just been speaking about? Um, Carsta Semenya is a, an intersex person. She is born with, she was and still has female anatomical characteristics, but her um, testosterone level was elevated to male levels. And so she was a person who competed as a woman until suspicions were raised about her performance, about her appearance. She then went through um, the hormone testing and her elevated male hormone levels were detected. An important thing to note though, with Carter Semenya and intersex athletes, that their elevated testosterone levels is naturally occurring. There is no suggestion that they have taken any performance enhancing drug any substance to elevate their testosterone levels. It's naturally occurring just as a seven-foot basketballer 
is seven foot by nature, or you've got a huge wingspan, big hands. Nature confers on certain people certain traits different to the norm. Eric, just on that, um, a great stat I like is that if you're a, a United States male between the age of 20 and 35 and you're over seven foot tall, there's a 13% chance you're playing in the NBA right now. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that, that, that's an actual advantage right there. Yeah, I mean, look, we're all blessed with certain natural advantages. Some of us are blessed with height, um, the ability to pump blood through our body at faster rates that make us good athletes. Um, some of us, like you know, Ian Thorpe, legendary, have you know, webbed feet. Um, but we don't, we don't say to people, because nature blessed you with something, you can't compete. We celebrate them when they compete. And, you know, Casa Semenya was no different. Um, you know, I, I think from what, what you said before, I'm also someone who's a firm Casa Semenya supporter. I think she is, you know, she has been treated appallingly for a naturally occurring advantage when we, we don't treat other people with naturally occurring advantages in the same way. Just, just on Casa Semenya, we'll get to the transgender shortly, but in relation to just, just take Casa because she's probably the exemplar. Uh, I think she's uh, an incredibly good athlete. What is her natural advantage that, that, that she has? I mean, the, the science will say that over short power distances, so I think, you know, for her it was distances of, if I remember correctly, less than a mile or maybe it was less than 1,000 metres, mm. that the higher testosterone levels gave her certain mu muscle mass, muscle strength advantages that over shorter power distance running distances, she had an unfair advantage. Okay. Is it just testosterone, Eric, or is it other things? For instance, we hear about fast twitch muscles and, uh, and other hormones. Is it just testosterone that's making the difference for her or are there other advantages that she has? Um, as far as I'm aware, and based on you know, the court decisions of the Court of Arbitration of Sport, it was all about testosterone. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, then that brings us to transgender. Um, tell me the issues there uh, which impact on, on sport. Okay, well, again, for the transgender athlete, it does come back to testosterone. Testosterone seems to be the key marker. Um, and so you've got somebody, and the main issue we're talking about is transgender women. We are talking about men who transition to female the opposite doesn't seem to be an issue. So we can, and maybe we can talk about that later. But yeah. so um, the the issue is that, um, and I should say at the start, I'm not a scientist. I don't purport to be a scientist. Um, but as I, the scientific evidence there is, and I should again probably caveat by saying it's contested yep. and it's scant, you know, the science on testosterone is like, you know, the science on climate change. You know, there are people who deny it, there are the people who swear by it and everything <clears> in between. So the evidence, though, I think it's fair to say establishes that at puberty, males gain certain physiological advantages because of their higher testosterone level, greater muscle strength, muscle mass, um, that they are on average, and again, this is all about averages, but they're on average bigger and stronger than their female counterparts when they go through puberty. Yep. Before puberty, it doesn't seem to be such an issue. Um, 
A transgender athlete can take hormone suppression, testosterone um, suppression regimes, hormone therapy to try to lower their testosterone levels. Um, the evidence on the impact of taking that um, hormone suppression therapy, again, is scant. Um, the evidence does suggest that it does reduce muscle mass, it reduces bone density and other physical characteristics that come from testosterone. So there is evidence that it does reduce those things. Um, but there seems to be a residual advantage. And the debate is whether how much does that residual advantage confer a competitive advantage in sports, and particularly in sports that require on power, speed, or involve combat collision. Yep. So that's really the issue. So how much of a residual advantage do these athletes retain once they go through the hormone therapy? There's so much outrage, uh, Eric, uh, everywhere. And I'm not a social media person, but I understand on social media it's it's horrible out there. Um, and as I understand, again, uh, transgender athletes are just basically copying it um, from the trolls on social media. And it just seems to me to be incredibly unfair uh, that there's scant, to use your word, scant evidence about the um, effects of uh, testosterone-reducing drugs. Um, how much evidence is there out there that reducing testosterone is in any way a panacea? Look, there is, I mean, the evidence is scant, but it's building it, because this issue has become hot and topical. The evidence is building. There's a lot of researchers wearing, working in the area, but it's also scant because when we're dealing at the elite level, there are so few athletes who have transitioned at the elite level. So in a sense, the, 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 sub, the, the, um, the population base on which to do the studies are so few. Yep. And some people have talked, referred to transgender athletes as the problem, as the solution looking for a problem. I mean, there aren't that many athletes out there right now. So therefore it's hard to get a robust scientific base when there are so few people, particularly at that elite level. So, so the N, N number in any survey is going to be basically about the same people because the, the sample uh, is so small and they're basically going to be researching the same people because there's so few transgender athletes who are actually competing in international sport. That's correct, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously there, there, are, there are transgender athletes competing at the community level, but as a general rule, we don't put community-level athletes through this problem. Community-level sport is much more inclusive. Eric, in terms of the actual process, we, we, we hear about you know, males who are transgender, who are transitioning uh, to females. What does that actually involve? Um, again, we're probably taking me to an area where I'm not the expert and I'm, I'm not involved. But if I go back... In time, there used to be a point in time where people had to go through surgical changes. So they had to surgically have their anatomical organs altered. Yep. Um, we have moved beyond that. Um, so, and again, but different sports and different communities will set different um, barriers. I mean, we still have some countries where transitioning is illegal and it's not facilitated. Right. So... Um, so, you know, there are different barriers. So, but today, 
um, you know, a lot of communities will accept hormone therapy as a genuine demonstration or of a commitment to the, to the lifestyle to which they're transitioning. Um, but as a community, we also now have at certain places, in a sense, um, self-identification. Yep. You know, people can say, I am now a trans woman or a trans man, change their clothes, change their appearance, live the lifestyle of that transitioning without actually going through any medical treatment. And there are many sections of society that will accept them as that. Sport has taken a position so far that self-identification is not sufficient. Yep. There needs to be some form of medical transition, but hormone therapy or testosterone suppression therapy is sufficient. And I can just imagine that uh, people don't live their lives through a sporting prism. They don't identify as a sports person necessarily. They identify as themselves uh, and, and being male, being female, that, that's part of it but they identify as being Italian, they identify as being Croatian, they identify as being a scientist, they, a professor. There's a whole lot of ways that we identify as ourselves. It's a fairly dramatic change or, uh, to be told by sport, well, if you want to play sport at a decent level, at the level that you want to play, you're going to have to do this radical uh, readjustment of your hormonal makeup uh, for what? <laughs> to, be, to be abused on social media uh, and to be uh, cast as an outlier by not only the sport but other athletes within the sport. And I, I would think it's getting so difficult, in fact, horrible out there, that not many people would, um, would make that change. Yeah. Um, John, let me make a couple of observations there because I think you, you know, you've, you've, you've hit the crux of the issue here. So let me just make a couple of observations. Um, first of all, um, you're right. It is a huge lifestyle change and quite a traumatic change for somebody to go through. I have not seen any, not even an iota of evidence that anyone is going through this change to gain a competitive advantage in the yep. sport of their chosen. Yep. They're doing this for lifestyle reasons and sport is part of their lifestyle. But no one is doing this in order to get a competitive advantage. Well, I've seen no evidence whatsoever. Yep. Um, the second point you talk about is um, the difficulty of the transition, the, um, the reception that they receive in the community. You've talked about the, you know, the tone of the social media debate. Um, the only thing, I, and it's there, and I, and I absolutely accept that. The only thing I will say is that those people who query um, the circumstances in which trans athletes should be able to compete in sport also cop a fair bit of harassment and flack. Mm -hmm. There is a very strong pro-trans community that seek to, um, that can be very aggressive in challenging anyone who questions the place of trans athletes in sport. And I have seen academics attacked as well for suggesting or supporting um, sporting policies that place hurdles in their way. So what I think we have is, as we do in any incredibly emotive debate, is that we often have people talking at each other, talking past each other, but not talking to each other. And the only thing that's, so the only point I want to make is I think we see that on both sides. But the issue is on this debate, yes, these people are making an incredibly difficult and brave 
personal lifestyle choice, but it does have impacts on other people. If we accept that there is a residual competitive advantage, then we need to have a debate about the athletes against which against whom they're competing, for whom this competitive advantage, in their eyes, changes the playing field. Eric, you're one of the few uh, academics I've seen who had the guts to, to put your toe in the water uh, of these very murky waters. And um, I think you, your view is that uh, we have to pay more attention to the work health and safety laws. Mm. Um, you wrote a recent article, I think, uh, December 2020, um, which has had some uh, publicity. Is that your view, that, uh, that that's where we should be heading? Well, um, the article I wrote that you referred to um, was in response to World Rugby. World Rugby came out with a policy for transgender athletes at the elite level yep. that, basically, that imposed um, a blanket ban on trans women athletes um, and, it, and it justified it primarily on health and safety issues. And that was the first time that I had seen a policy so directly justify an exclusion on health and safety issues. And that triggered me to get involved in this debate because my interest in sport is largely around health and safety. So if you look at the two, the two justifications that are imposed on or are, are put forward to justify somehow excluding or restricting transgender athletes from participating in sport, one is the competitive advantage or the unfair competitive advantage they pose, particularly to women's sport, and they threaten the integrity of women's sport. And the other is health and safety, that because of the, um, the physiological and physical advantages that men generally have over women that cannot be completely reversed by hormone um, replacement or, or hormone suppression therapy, that trans women pose a physical threat to cisgender, non-trans women. Yep. And my, my, my point there is, the, any, any, any health and safety risk doesn't arise because of the gender or the gender identity of the athlete. It arises because of a disparity in strength and size and physique. And I'm in Melbourne. We're an AFL uh, town. I remember the photos of the Fremantle Ruckman, Laurie Sandilands, standing next to the Western Bulldogs player, Caleb Daniels. I mean, if, if Sandilands fell on Daniels, he'd be hurt. Um, so yeah, we have we have physical health and safety risks in sport, regardless of transgender. So I actually thought the health and safety argument, quite frankly, was a furphy. Because if we're going to say that people that size disparities create a health and safety risk, then we should deal with that risk regardless of the gender identity of the athlete. And I actually thought world rugby were getting on very slippery slope if they were going to start to say we have to control participants in our sport at the senior level, we do it at the junior level all the time. We have age restrictions. Some sports have weight restrictions. But if we're going to do it at the elite level, I just thought that they were creating a very, very slippery slope. Eric, a sport where workplace health and safety cannot play a role, swimming. Um, and we've, we've got the situation with Leah Thomas in America, um, a possibility of uh, getting into the Olympics. Uh, could you just explain to us about that case? Okay, so so Leah Thomas is, was was born male um, and competed at the college level as a male swimmer. Has transitioned 
um, and is now a trans woman, now competing at the college level in America and competing um, quite successfully. She set records at the US collegiate level as a woman and is now vying for Olympic selection. Um, and so her presence has sharpened everybody's focus on the transgender issue in swimming. And, um, you know, and, and for her, you know, this is a life dream to compete to the best of her ability in her chosen sport, in her, in the identity, the gender identity that she is. Um, but we've also had the cisgender, the non-trans athletes against whom she is potentially competing, raising, and I think justifiable concerns in the sense of concerns that we should take seriously and we should work through. And, you know, so we've had, you know, swimmers of the calibre of Emma McKeon and Ariana Titmus, against whom Leah Thomas might compete, saying we support inclusion. We, you know, we, we don't want to exclude transgender athletes, but at the same time, we're looking for, for fairness, you know, and, and basically saying we are putting our trust, trust in FINA. They're putting their trust in the International Swimming Federation FINA and trusting them to come up with a set of rules that will be fair. And Fina will be meeting very shortly. Yeah. Today, to I believe. Very issue. Well, talk about being topical on, on the issue, uh, uh, Eric. The Fina will be meeting today, and apparently they are going to make a decision, which I, I find fairly extraordinary. When you look at who's going to be making the decision, and they talk about sports scientists, lawyers, and then they talk about the heads of their sporting federations. Now, um, we just had the AFL, heads of, heads of the AFL, trying to agree on anything in the last few days, and they can't agree on anything. I, I would be amazed if I think it's 190 countries or something in, in FINA who are going to vote on this issue. It's reported that there are three possibilities. Allow transgender athletes to compete. Allow them to complete, compete with those hormonal reductions that we've spoken about. Not a, apparently not as savage uh, as has been the case, but, um, but, but nevertheless. And thirdly, to have their own competition to have a transgender competition. Now, we won't be able to predict the future, but do you have any thoughts, um, A, how it will pan out, but B, whether they are viable, the only three viable options? Um, I mean, the, the, fourth, the fourth option is excluding them in total. I mean, that's the fourth option. And so I don't, I don't think that's a viable option. Um, the third option you mentioned about having their own competition, um, I don't think that's a viable option and I don't think it's an appropriate option either. I don't think it's viable because there aren't that many competing at the international level. I mean, I don't know who Leah Thomas would compete against if we just had an international competition for trans athletes. So I just don't think that's viable, nor do I think it's appropriate that we should treat them as completely separate in that manner. Personally, I find it horrible, mm. Eric. Uh, and you just imagine uh, what will happen if that becomes the outcome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a separate competition for para-athletes. Para um, and so people are trying to draw an analogy between being transgender <laughs> and being a para-athlete. And I, as I said, I, I think it's an appalling analogy. Yeah. Um, and one that I don't support in any way. Most sports have opted for the second option, setting some kind of testosterone level that has to be maintained over a certain period of time for the athlete to be eligible to compete in the competition of the gender to which they associate. 
That seems to be the most common approach. What I think is interesting, though, is in November last year, the International Olympic Committee issued a new policy, um, a new framework, and they called it the Fairness Non-Discrimination Framework. And what they said to their, their um, member federations, and basically all Olympic sports, they were talking to all Olympic sports, they were saying, we want to reverse the paradigm. The paradigm is that we include transgender athletes unless the science um, proves that there is a performance-enhancing advantage. Mm. So the presumption is inclusion unless the science um, says there is a clear basis to exclude and we can clearly and scientifically justify the testosterone levels on which they're being excluded. And I think that that will, that will have a very significant impact yep. um, on how a lot of sports deal with it. Eric, thank you for that. Um, it'll be fascinating to see what the decision is of FINA if it is, in fact, made. And I'm wondering, Eric, if uh, it would be possible uh, we could get you back another day to talk about this decision um, and to see what the ramifications are because whatever FINA does is not going to be the end of it. That won't solve rugby's problem. It won't solve the AFL's problem. It won't solve a lot of sports problems. It'll really only solve FINA's problem, and I, I suspect Alani adds to their problem. So... If it was okay with you, Eric, we'd like to get you back uh, to talk about this uh, because I've got to say it's a, it's a fascinating issue, one that we've covered for some time and um, it's starting to become uh, a lot more important as the uh, next Olympics approaches. Um, well, first of all, the answer is simple yes. I, I'd, be, I'd, pre I'd love it. I've enjoyed this. Uh, as I said at the start, it's a complex issue. I don't think there is more complex a more complex issue. And... Uh, and it's one that's going to continue to evolve. And I think it will probably be dealt with in an iterative basis. As each sport develops their policy, every other sport looks at it. They look, look at how it's received, how it works. And there'll be this iterative process of change and evolution as we as a society grapple with this issue across a whole range of fronts. Sport's not unique. All the Absolutely. issues sport deals with are sports that we as a society deal with holistically. Racism, drugs, sexuality. Yep. Um, and as we, as a society, learn how to deal with it, I think sports will be part of that journey. Thanks, thanks again, Eric. That's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks very much, Eric. Uh, I echo uh, the judges' sentiments. Um, a terrific discussion today. And uh, I think for our viewers, certainly explains a lot that they may not have already considered. And uh, we'd just love to have you on again very soon. Oh, that would be a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. And I, I hope it's a small contribution to a, an important debate. Thanks for listening to the Sports Fan Radio podcast. If you like what you've been listening to, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also get more Sports Fan Radio on our YouTube channel. <music>